You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard McCaslin, a Texas State Historical Association endowed history professor at the University of North Texas, currently teaching classes on Texas and 19th century U.S. military history. Dr. McCaslin received his Ph.D. from UT Austin and his master's from the Louisiana State University. He is the author or editor of 18 books, including Tainted Breeze, The Great Hanging at Gainesville, Texas, 1862, which won the Tullis Prize of the Texas State Historical Association and a commendation for the American Association for State and Local History. Quite impressively, his biography of Robert E. Lee, Lee in the Shadow of Washington, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. We're delighted he's managed to find the time to come and talk with us today because he's currently working on not one, but three books, biographies of sculptor Pompeo Copino, and Texas Ranger William L. Wright, and a study of the Trans-Mississippi in the Civil War. He is listed in Who's Who in America and is an elected fellow of the Texas State Historical Association. In addition to this, Dr. McCaslin shares his knowledge with Ollie, where he teaches a variety of fascinating courses that would be enough to keep any history buff on the edge of their seat. Welcome, Dr. McCaslin. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's good to have you here. You have a very impressive collection of accomplishments. <laughs> yeah, it's better than a real job. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly intriguing to me is that you have said your primary interest is in addressing the myths of our past and finding the truth that lies within, as well as explaining the not-so-true elements that develop. Can you expand on this bit? Like, what sort of myths? What kind of things are you talking about? Well, I've pondered this a bit, and I've thought, you know, why does someone become interested in myths or go after myths? And I'm, I'm going to blame my parents and my family. <laughs> I grew up among very stubborn, individualistic, very bright people who really didn't take things at face value. They questioned and challenged and raised me to be the same way. And so one of the worst things you can ever tell me is no, or you can't do that, because I'm going to come back with the question, why? And when you tell me, because that's the way it's always been, or that's what everybody does, then I'm going to begin to dig into that and pick it apart. It was an easy transference when I went to college to start using that as a tool. I mean, that's something that drives you to be a good historian. You're curious. You're reading dead people's mail, for goodness <laughs> sakes. And you're 
looking at things that people say and take for granted, part of the American mythology, and you suddenly realize that maybe that's not correct. And I truly believe that a lot of the myths we have, I understand their utility in supporting our patriotism, our alliance to country, our self-identity, our comfort in being in our own skin. I've got all that, but I still truly believe that a true story is much better than one that was just made up and can actually help us understand ourselves better. Good example. Grew up in the South, born in Atlanta, Georgia, raised on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Had older relatives all the way up to students who show up in my class that'll tell you, oh, yes, the South was unified. Everybody supported the Confederacy. Every young man who could fight and pick up a gun went and fought. And I have quite a few Confederate ancestors myself, but does that make them a bit odd? I mean, people aren't usually that united in a cause. So that's one of the things I've worked on throughout my career is to discover that Southerners were just as cantankerous and argumentative <laughs> and divided over the Civil War during the Civil War as they are today. Right. And if we understand that, then we can understand better how to deal with conflict within our own times, our own divisions and arguments over wars over people that have different opinions than us, to grab a hold of a myth and say, oh, there was this wonderful time in our history when we all stood together, is not very useful when we realize that today we often don't stand together. I think it's more useful to realize that we've always had discussions, divisions, and arguments, and we kind of look at how people dealt with that. And we can decide what we won't do, like the great hanging in Gainesville, Texas, and what we might take as a useful tool. It must be exciting as a historian when you discover something that's taken as the truth in history and you discover it to be one of those myths. Well, it can be very exciting, but then you have two things to worry about. As you sit in the dark late at night, tapping away on your computer, you're worried nobody will ever read this. And then what's even more crushing is when they read it and then discard it Mm. because they would rather have their myth. I'll give you a perfect example. Sure. Rip Ford. That's his nickname, R.I.P. Ford. John Salmon Ford is nicknamed forever in Texas history as Rip Ford. And people will tell you that's because when he was the adjutant for his regiment in the Mexican War, he's the one that had to write the sad letters home about the Texas Rangers who got killed. And he always signed it, R.I.P., rest in peace, Ford. Nice, wonderful story. Where do we get that story? We get it from his grandson, who got it from his mother, who was Rip Ford's daughter. Now, that grandson told this story to a famous historian named Walter Prescott Webb, who wrote the first big book on the Texas Rangers in 1936. Went on to be a movie. So everybody will tell you, Rip Ford wrote Rest in Peace. Well, the trouble is, number one, you will never, ever find a document that Ford signed R.I.P. Really? Ford. No. <laughs> Second, no Texans actually got killed, so there was no reason for him to actually write these letters. That's very interesting. So where the heck does this story come from? Well, when he was in the Mexican War, he contracted recurrent malaria. And he struggled through the rest of his career, which goes on through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, with getting malaria. And he would literally fall asleep in his saddle and fall out of his saddle at times. He was so ill. His men whom he could not remember their names, so he assigned each of them a nickname. You know, Doc, Sleepy, whatever, Grumpy, Happy, 
Dopey tagged him as Rip Ford. Rip Van Winkle Ford. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that's one source. The other source is he was a very aggressive fighter, so he would rip into his enemies. That surfaces as well. The Rip Van Winkle surfaces in the 1850s. By the 1860s, we have Rip Ford. It rips into his enemies. So he would go to these reunions after the Civil War, and I'll wrap this up quick, with his little 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old daughter, sitting on his horse behind him, and everybody say, oh, it's Rip, it's Rip. So she's going to ask. Actually, this is not his daughter, his granddaughter, excuse me, be his great-grandson. It's Rip, Rip. So at some point, she's going to say, Granddaddy, why do they call you Rip? Now, do you want to tell her, because, honey, I used to fall asleep and fall out of my saddle? Absolutely not. No. Do you tell her, because I used to kill people a lot? No. (laughs) You don't tell an eight-year-old girl that. So that's where that R.I.P. story came from. Well, honey, you know, in the war, many people got killed, and I had to write the letters home. She told that to her son, who told it to Webb. In my book on Ford, I twice take the time to tell you everything I just told you, in the intro and at the proper place in the text. Almost every reviewer says that I actually confirmed that R.I.P. Ford is rest in peace for the Mexican no. War. They want their rest in peace story. You see and what so you want to see, right? Yes. So that's a great example of people have their myths about Rip Ford, for example, and they like them. And they will keep them no matter what some pointy-headed academic will tell them. <laughs> But if somebody really wants, I kind of trace the, to use a fancy word, the etymology of where that title came from. Right. Now, do you have a certain number of sources when you (laughs) find some historical fact? How does that work? Corroboration is necessary. Mm That's for all of my graduate students who might listen to this. <laughs> Do you um, hear that? <laughs> yes. Veracity, you know, the quality of the source right. matters as well. But I am a shotgun researcher. I will cite everything and anything from garage sale ads, which I have cited, mm-hmm. to conversations, to documents, etc. as long as I can corroborate them. Because my greatest fear is for a reviewer to say, but he didn't look at this. Right. So... I I have huge fat footnotes, and I'm very notorious for that because I f- live in absolute fear that I'll miss something. I can imagine. Well, you've written about some very, very interesting incidents in history, one of which I found very surprising. It was about the incident in Gainesville mm-hmm. in 1862. In your book, The Great Hanging at Gainesville, you describe one of the largest vigilante, violent acts in American history. Such a notorious event happening right up the road from us. And amazing that nobody had ever written about it before. I had never heard about it before. Uh, People who grow up there had never heard about it. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. This was an incident that happened, and you can understand why people might not want to talk about it. You also have to understand that it would get buried because after the Civil War, the Texas population tripled between 1865 and 1900. So really, if you watch, kind of track through the records, Gainesville is populated by almost an entirely different group of people who weren't here during the Civil War by the mid to late 1870s. Railroad comes in, cattle develop, etc. 
So they wouldn't know about it, and the people who were there don't want to talk about it. Because this happened much earlier. This happened in 1862 during the war. So even though it's front-page news in the London Times and the New York Times, and there's an illustrated spread on it in Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly in New York, and people are discussing it back and forth, and there were folks who were prosecuted for it after the war, we didn't talk about it much. And even when I decided to do the story— as my dissertation, I had most of my professors telling me, you can't, there's no records, there's no sources. Well, when I hit 643 pages in the dissertation, they said, you can stop now. <laughs> Remember, I have that fear of missing yes. something. Yeah. You found a it few things. It ran rampant. <laughs> but the hanging is actually somewhat simplistic and all and complex at the same time. You got people living on a frontier with no established legal system. They have become accustomed to looking to certain leaders amongst them who will lead ranger detachments or other groups in quick and sure justice against Comanches or outlaws or whoever comes, and they do come. Mm -hmm. So when the what's called a peace party conspiracy surfaces in 1862 in response to the Confederacy passing a draft law, first ever in U.S. history, Confederates imposed new taxes to raise the money to supply these new troops that they were drafting, and then had what was called impressment. You got two cows, the army needs one of them, so they'll come and take it. Now, they'll give you an IOU or really valuable Confederate money for it, but you don't have the right to say no. Well, this might anger a few North Texans who are a long way from Richmond or Nashville or Atlanta. And so there was resentment. And so this organization did organize, I believe, to resist the draft, to oppose paying taxes, to avoid having their stuff taken. But there was a Confederate official in this county named James G. Borland. Every county was put under martial law. He is going to impose the law. And so when he realizes he has this problem, he contacts the governor. The governor says, I'm sorry, I can't send you anything. I've got nothing to send you. You do what you think you need to do, and we'll back you 100%. And turn in your receipts, and we'll pay you. And so Borland did. And he rounded up about 200 people with the support of the local militia who were, you know, they believed they had a problem, that there were neighbors amongst them that were going to do horrible things. And so they eventually lynched or hanged 40 of them in a series of vigilante court meetings over two weeks. I even read where some of them were acquitted and then they got yes. them again and they hung them anyway. It really went off the tracks. Yeah, the beginning it sounds like it. was as about as legalistic as you're going to get, led by William C. Young, who was the colonel of the 11th Texas Cavalry. He was also the richest man in the county. He owned 52 slaves. He had been a U.S. Marshal. He had been quite a man of stature. He took control of the court and ferreted out among these 200 people, about seven or eight that he thought were the worst. They were hanged. Then the court adjourned with the idea that in one week later, they would come back and release all the men they had acquitted. Young was assassinated during that week. And that really sent everything into a downward spiral. That's when 19 will be hanged. Now, right before that, as they adjourned, local military officials, whom I cannot name because I do not know for certain who they were, came into the court, took the records, and picked 14 men and hanged them who had already wow. been acquitted. So, yeah, probably 33 of the 40 who were hanged 
were officially acquitted at some point in the process. Whenever I hear of something like that, I always imagine, and it may not have been the case, but it, I always imagine that it might have been an opportune time for someone to purge their competition like yes. this. That is, when somebody writes the next book on The Great Hanging, and some bright young student will write a much better book than mine, because the internet, this book came out before the internet really took off. There is now a website where people are coming together from all over the country. They're sending in material from their families. They're sending in photographs. I've got pictures That's now terrific. of people. And so now the next person who writes it will understand Family relationships. Oh, he was so-and-so's brother-in-law. He was married to so-and-so. He was married to his daughter. All these things will be much clearer than I was ever able to do back then. And it helps to unravel the threads, I can There's imagine. There's where you're going to get the, oh, they had a fight over a fence line two months ago. Right. And, and oh, my goodness, look, he's one of the ones. What a shock. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think some of that will surface, which only makes it more sad that it's the yeah. the darker angels of our nature yeah. to steal the line from Abraham Lincoln. It's not our better angels, it's but our darker angels. As you said, it's important to know what makes us be who we are in the past, the good and the bad, and helps us when we try to figure out what's going on in the present and it in the future. After 9-11, I was invited to a lot of different groups, including U.S. Army officer groups, to talk about the Great Hanging and to break it down in even more depth than I just did about why these things happen. Why do people go off the tracks and do these? Because they were afraid of you know backlashes within that's the right. U.S. against different groups. So that's important. That's and so I was able to say, to okay, this stories. is what happens. Yeah. And what I remind people at the end of the story, and I'll say it again, you need to really think about how this is going to look in the history books 100 years from now when you That's take right. an action. That's true. You know, That's you know, true. Borland, I think, was thinking very much in the moment. It's what he had done before, never on this scale. And so he, I don't think he ever understood why people were upset with him. Well, now you have an Ollie class before Bonnie and Clyde, the Ranger Force in Texas, 1901 and 1935. And you mentioned the movie Highwaymen that hints at yes. some of the things you talk about. That was a terrific movie. I really enjoyed that. Yes, I have. Okay. And I enjoyed it very much. Now, you say it hints at a relationship between the Texas Rangers and the governor, Miriam Ma Ferguson. And her husband, Pa. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I truly believe, and this is going to rattle some people's cages, that probably the greatest enemy of the Texas Rangers in, throughout their history was the Fergusons. <laughs> now, why were they so against uh, the Rangers? Yeah, they really were against the Rangers that they could not control. The, the sins of the Fergusons are multiple. Number one, it's got to be frustrating to be a lawman of any kind, Texas Ranger or not, and have the governor setting amazingly high records for pardoning people and letting them out of jail. One of the things that infuriated Frank Hamer is that several of Bonnie and Clyde's gang had been pardoned and let out of jail by Is Ma that Ferguson. right? Yes, I didn't know that. Problems. Now, I spent a lot of time with my new project going through the convict register records. And all governors seem to be kind of guilty of that in this period. But goodness gracious, it's a multiplier of, of 50 or 60 for the Ferguson. Why would she have done that? The rumor is, though we'll never be able to prove it, it's financial. 
Um, there's a famous story where some old fella comes to visit Pa while he's governor and wants to get his son out of Huntsville. And all for Pa Ferguson will talk about is this horse he's trying to sell at this inflated price. And finally, the old man says, Governor, I understand your problem selling the horse. But what's that got to do with my son? My son is riding in jail. And Ferguson allegedly looked at him and said, Sir, you don't understand. Your son can ride that horse home <laughs> from Huntsville. That's just a horrible anecdote, but it conveys yeah. that feeling of the, the attitude people had towards them. So the that's the first sin. You know, you feel like you're frustrated. You're fighting against the district court system anyway, and we could talk some about that. But the second thing is the Fergusons also handed out special ranger badges like popcorn. Thousands of men. It's like being an honorary ranger, sort um, of. Let's or say what you, was that? you're a rich rancher in Jim Hogg County, and you've given a thousand dollars to the Ferguson election campaign. So you call up the governor, and say, "I got a little security problem on my ranch. I need six badges." And in the mail, in a couple of days, would come six commissions with six badges. I can imagine the Texas Rangers weren't too fond of that. Infuriated the reg- that's what you see Hamer talking about Ferguson Rangers. Third problem, the recruitment of regular rangers themselves. I'll give you one particular story is um, Harry Ransom or Henry Ransom. He went by Harry. This is a guy who'd been put out of the army for torturing Filipinos in the Filipino insurrection. Oh, my goodness. He had then been hired as the chief of police in Houston and shot a lawyer to death, for which he lost his job there. So when Ferguson has a problem on the border in 1915, he hires Harry Ransom, gives him carte blanche to hire pretty much a company, a new company of rangers from prison guards, and explains to him in front of witnesses, do what you think you need to do. Remember, I'm the governor and I can pardon you for whatever you do. Oh, my word. So Harry Ransom goes down on the border and commits some atrocities and walks scot-free away from several of them until he got in a position he couldn't get away from. He was shot to death in the hallway of a a Sweetwater Hotel in 1918, Hmm. which was labeled an accident. There's others. J. Monroe Fox should never have had a commission. He's the guy whose men committed the Porvenir Massacre. In 1918. What was that? I'm sorry to say I don't know um, about that. There was some complaints about some rangers. Ranchers were complaining down on the border near the Big Bend that their stock was being stolen and other items. And so U.S. Army personnel and rangers went to a small village, brought out, if I remember correctly, about 15 or 16 men and young boys and shot them. That's so sad. And... J. Monroe Fox says, I've read his official reports. You know, as he's arguing, he shouldn't be removed from command. He said, well, you know, they were bad people. Mm-hmm. I don't care if they were bad people. They're still entitled to a court hearing. That's right. And given the laws of the day, they were not going to be executed. These were not capital crimes. Right. So J. Did, Monroe Fox, We did have the way, a constitution in those days. We did. <laughs> and it counted for everybody. It was, yeah, it was there um, back then. So... Between the Fergusons hiring some very bad people, for example, J. Monroe Fox will be removed as a ranger. When Ma comes back in in 1925, she reinstalls him as a ranger captain. Why would anybody appoint that man again? So then she disbanded the rangers. Is that right? I mean, I'm getting my okay. facts from the movie, yes. so that tells you where my what history is coming did. from. 
is during the election of 1932, the Rangers were very openly against her. They were very much in support of Ross Sterling, the incumbent governor. So when she took office, she dismissed every one of the Rangers but one and replaced them with her own people. Now, the replacements were also much smaller in number. So the movie, for dramatic effect, says she abolishes the Rangers. What she did was fire every one of the 48 or so Rangers that were serving at that time, hired three dozen in their place. That's why in the movie, one of the people she fired was Frank Hamer. And that's why they have that little moment when the guy says, I'm going to hire Frank Hamer, and she looks at him like, no, you're not. (laughs) But they did the job. Frank Hamer uh, and yeah. Manny Galt. Manny Galt. So anyway, the Fergusons, in my opinion, were no friends to the Rangers. Mm. Um, it'll be part of the talk I give on the Ranger Force. The point of the Ranger Force talk is that the Rangers have been many, many different organizations through time. And that the Ranger Force, you know, they really weren't even called the Texas Rangers until 1935. Oh, yeah. They were no. called the Texas Force. They were called the Texas Force from 01 to 35. They were the Frontier Battalion from 1875 to 1901. They were just Rangers or mounted volunteers prior to the Civil War. There was a Frontier Defense Force in 1870-71, but they really were not the Texas Ranger Division, certainly not of the DPS, until 1935. That's fascinating. It is. It's going to be an excellent lecture, I know. We always go back to what I was saying. The truth is often is much more interesting than the facts. You got that right. It makes it more easy to connect with. Yeah, yeah. They're a very human organization. And I know I've just talked about some very bad people, but, you know, Frank Hamer was a pretty impressive fellow. And so was the guy I'm writing about, William Lee Wright. You know, you got to put a funeral oration from Shakespeare. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. So let it be with the rangers, right? <laughs> so is that the story of the fellow that you're writing about now? He's a good one. Say his name again. William Lee Wright. He was in the Rangers, like many of them were, off and on from 1899 to 1939. He last served as a Ranger at the age of 72. And what interested you in him? Oh, I was writing the book on Sutherland Springs, which again, look on Amazon.com. And he had arrested a rapist. Saved him from a lynch mob. That's another point I like to make is how many times rangers saved people from lynch mobs. It's very popular now to say, oh, rangers were helping lynch mobs. No, they fought hard, and sometimes they lost. The guy was convicted, sentenced to be hanged, which was done by county at that time. County, that means the local sheriff had to hang him. And in the course of hanging him, when Wright is up on the platform, the fellow stabs him in the chest with a sharpened spoon. No. Did that he kill co- him? Nope. Nope. He stayed on the gallows. His brother, Milam, who was a deputy and a Texas Ranger, finished the hanging part, and then Wright went to the hospital, and he was down for about three weeks. Wow. Fortunately, it was a sharpened spoon. It apparently must have hit a rib rather than actually puncturing the heart. But it was pretty spectacular. I mean, you know, you're standing up there with blood all over it your shirt. It sounds it. So that caught my attention. I can imagine. And then when people were talking to me and saying, oh, yeah, I know this story about him. And then one of my former students, Jody Ginn, who has his book on the Texas Rangers, which I hope will do him well, he handed me two boxes of Wright's papers and some interviews with Wright's son 
Uh, there were 17 members of Wright's family or ancestors who were Texas Rangers. That's it's a, impressive. It's an interesting family. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. So That sounds like be, a terrific subject to research. That's what I thought. And yeah. it gives me a fellow to talk about when we've got the Hamers, who's famous, or we've got the bad guys like Ransom and Fox. Here we got William Lee Wright, who is just quietly serving as a captain, doing his job, doing it well for people of all colors, of all types. And we forget about him. because Those are like, important stories to tell, mm-hmm. too. And, you know, he's got some cool nicknames, and he's, he was in some gunfights, and he got stabbed again in the chest. Sounds like a good movie in the making. <laughs> Except he doesn't—he's he's about five foot seven, 165 pounds, and as nearsighted as you can be. No kidding. And always wore a coat and tie. He just doesn't look like Clint Eastwood. Doesn't sound like he's my no stereotypic <laughs> idea of a ranger. No. Well, you were also writing a couple of books on some sculptors that— are important in our Texas landscape, honoring Confederate heroes and veterans and other people. You want to talk about that? Capini is an ongoing labor of love. It's this going to take a while. Pompeo, Pompeo Luigi. Luigi Capini. Yeah, he's uh, Italian-born, classically trained in Florence by a fellow who trained him that monumental sculptures with historical stories and impact that tell the people's history are the way to make a career. And so Capini comes to America because he can't catch on at home, gets a few small jobs in New York, is sent down to Texas because he works fast and he works well, and he found a home. There's probably three or four dozen, or were three or four dozen Capini statues. Now, at the time he gets started, 1901, the big jobs, the big payers, the big purses are the heritage organizations. So his first 10 or 20 years, there are a lot of Confederate statues that he does. The three main ones on the Texas State Capitol are all Capini. The Confederates, the Terry's Texas Rangers, and Hutch Texas Brigade. But he also as a sculptor, comes to the attention of the legislature, who by 1910 wants to create a more inclusive mythology, there's <laughs> that word again, mm-hmm. or image or branding of mm-hmm. Texas. They want to get Texas separated from the Confederate cotton south and link it more to an inclusive, more American branding of the Alamo, San Jacinto, westward movements, you know, brave pioneers. And so they dig up Stephen F. Austin, and they take him to the Texas State Cemetery, and they have Capini do a nice statue of him. And they need a Betsy Ross, so they dig up Joanna Troutman, who never came to Texas. She lived and died her entire life in Georgia, but she stitched a flag for the Georgia Battalion. So she's our Betsy Ross, and Capini does a statue of her. We have our Lexington in Concord. It's at Gonzales, the come-and-take-it fight. So Capini does a statue for that. Of course, all-time well-paid. So he's also part of the rebranding of Texas. So by the time we get to our centennial, you know, we've refurbished the Alamo, and we've got a big monolith being built at San Jacinto. And we don't talk about the Civil War anymore. We talk about Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston and our heroes. And Capini has done, by that time, a dozen statues of Texas Revolution heroes. I've seen so many of his sculptures and not realize what the I Alamo was looking Cenotaph at. is his. The Littlefield Fountain at UT Austin is his. If you're a Baylor alum, you've seen two of them. If you're an Aggie, 
You've probably put pennies at the feet of Sol Ross. That's a Capini. If you've been to the Texas State Fair and gone in the Hall of State and seen those six big bronzes, those are Capini. Oh, he did a, quite a He's lot everywhere. of work. Yes. That's amazing. And he had a student or a person that worked with him. In 1910, he had tried to be a, a mentor to a few other young ladies, all of whom quit on him. But this one contacted him through the Brady Tuesday Club. And so he refused. He said, no, 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 no. Well, she was very persistent, and so were they. This is Waldine Tau? This is Waldine Tau will show up. Yeah, Tau. I'm still, people tell me different ways to pronounce her name. But she was incredibly talented. And he basically told her, you will devote your life to your art. No boyfriends, (laughs) no getting married. None of that silliness. I like being a virtuoso in music or something. (laughs) Or a nun. (laughs) I think of a nun myself. Uh And so she agreed. And now there are times in her life when she was tempted. There's a nice little biography of her that could be improved upon. I'll just be kind. But it does have some nice personal pieces in there. So Waldine comes to him, and she becomes his assistant. First his student— And then she moves up, and she does her own grand, large, monumental sculptures. For example, if you've ever been through Love Field and seen the ranger there, Mm -hmm. that's Waldine's. If you've ever seen the Moses Austin in downtown San Antonio, that's Waldine's. The MacArthur in front of the Freedom Academy at Howard Payne University, that is Waldine's. She has some amazing work herself. And so she was his assistant and stood in his shadow till he passed away in 1957. Funny thing is, most of her big work will come after that. She also kept the Academy open, which still operates in San Antonio today. There are still juried shows and lessons given at the Capini Academy of Fine Arts in San Antonio to this day. Well, you have really written about and discovered some interesting stories and some interesting people that played a large part in the history of Texas. Are there any other directions that you'd like to go to? Or (laughs) even so, this is kind of a two-part question. Are there Uh, any suggestions that you might have for listeners in their pursuit of their love of history? Sorry, but the next mountain I want to climb is retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got to finish the Capini book. The Ranger book will go to press this year. The albatross around my neck is the Civil War in the Trans-Mississippi because that is so large and so complex, and I've spent so many years on it. I've got numbers in my... I'd like to you know, walk away with 20 books. I'd like to walk away with 20 PhD students finished. I'm at 14 now, but i got five or six in the pipeline. So There you go. That's going to put it right up there to 19. Um, the thing is, and my wife will tell you, Who knows what I'll be working on in three years. I'll probably never stop. Retirement just gives me more time to mess with that stuff. I am at the enviable position now. The Ford book is a good example, and the Lee book. I didn't come up with the idea of doing a book on Robert E. Lee. In fact, I told the editor no when he first approached me. Is that right? But he kept buying me free dinners, and I'm a cheap (laughs) date. He kept working on me, and I finally found a hook that I thought would work, which is that Lee wanted to grow up to be George Washington. With Ford, I took it because I thought it was going to be an easy project. I thought I'd found a hook, basically redoing some of the stuff I did with Lee, and that turned into a much more complex book, but it's a very 
book that I'm very proud of, won several awards. And what's the title of that? That is uh, Fighting Stock. That's a quote from Ford. Ford said that when one comes from fighting stock, it behooves you to live up to that reputation or something to that effect. So I thought that's a good thesis for the book. He's trying to be what he thought his grandfathers were, which were these revolutionary war heroes. And that's the book. So those books came because somebody else asked me, and I'm at the enviable position, as I said, that people come to me and say, we want you to do so-and-so. We want you to do such-and-such. And I'm easily amused, easily distracted by bright, shiny objects. <laughs> so, you know, if you look on, the, there's a book on Washington the Brazos. Well, it was a slack year for the TSHA. There was a real go-getter, a nice Diana Powell was the president from Houston. She loved Washington on the Brazos. She said, well, you need a book done for this series. Why not do it on Washington on the Brazos? And they said, okay. Well, who we get? There's Rick. There he is. <laughs> and I'm over in the corner going, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about Washington on the Brazos? I don't, I've never been there. And I went down, I fell in love. It's a beautiful place. I suspect that you will continue to do this yeah. kind of thing. Once you've got a mind like that that's inquisitive. Uh, Nosy. And you're, <laughs> Stubborn. <laughs> you will continue on, which is fortunate for us, really fortunate for us. Well, I cannot thank you enough for being here today with us. This has been very interesting, and I appreciate you speaking with me today. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for having me. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Richard McCaslin. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.